Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> How are we doing this morning? Uh, I looked in my wallet to see if I had any money in it, and I, I don't. But I, I wish I could give you that deal again for 20 bucks before we put up the next slide if you can share with us the five-point gospel presentation message that we have been going over for the last, oh, maybe three months. Anybody want to take a chance at it? it? It's absolutely free. No money. I can't do money today. Yes! And I, I'm going to have to walk down here real quick just so I can make sure that everybody hears this. You said cold fingers? Three deers, two hats on the picture. Do you know what those represent? Do you remember what those represent? Cold fingers juggling green reindeer. Now that's, that's the, um, people would think you're crazy if they say, hey, why do you go to church? Well, because of the cold fingers juggling green reindeer. That will get you into a lot of trouble with friends. Uh, they will ask you what you're on and to stay off of it. But that represents something unbelievably powerful and, of course, true. Life-changing, life-saving. What does that represent? We can show the picture now. Oh, we've got it. It represents... Creation, fall, judgment, uh, grace, and response. All the parts of the gospel message that you can keep in your mind and share with someone that is in desperate need of hope, desperate need of salvation, desperate need of Christ. And that message is what drove Paul every single time he presented the gospel message to someone in need. That idea of you need this. And um, so far through the book of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul's mentioned the gospel many, many times. He's going to mention it again this morning. And I think if you just simply were here for a couple times and you just kind of caught a few things in First and Second Thessalonians, you'd almost come up with the impression that the books are about the end times and the books can be, depending on the moment in the book, might even feel a little depressing because we're talking about God's judgment. Now, God's judgment is a good thing because it, it brings us into heaven, but at the same time, there's a lot of friends and family that we know that don't know Christ and don't worship him or follow him or believe in him. And their end story is a lot different than the believer's end story. The believer's end story is one of absolute bliss and joy in heaven. But to the unbeliever, to the one who rejects Christ and the gospel, it's, it's hell. And that is never an easy thing to think about, especially with loved ones. It's never easy to think of that. Paul doesn't switch his thinking in this portion of Scripture, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and to the end of the chapter. He doesn't switch his thinking, but he gives you probably one of the most encouraging, motivating messages he possibly could ever give you. I don't know if you've uh, 
Christians are really into these cute little motivational sayings. They're not just Christians. Everybody's into these little motivational sayings. You know, they have a poster of this motivation. They have a poster of this motivation. And they have all these little things that try to motivate them to get through the day. I'm telling you, if 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through the end of the chapter is not on your go-to list for motivation, it needs to be. There is nothing more rock-solid when it comes to motivating you to the Christian life than these verses that we're looking at this morning. Now, they're not cute little sayings that you can put on a poster because they're, they're verses, but I'm telling you, this is where you need to start your thinking and need to start your... If you're bummed out, if you're stressed, if you're feeling anxious, if you're worried, if you're feeling beaten, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling confused, whatever you may be going through that is affecting you, these verses are the answer to that feeling, to that emotion, to that unsecurity, to that uncertainty of life. These verses are amazing. Let's start just with that very first verse, verse 13, and see how Paul motivates you. He says in verse 13 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Paul starts out by saying, hey, this is a moment to be thankful. It is a moment to be thankful for you. You are in God's mind, and not just as an afterthought, or not just on your birthday, and not just when you're going through something tough, but you are always on his mind. And Paul says, we need to be thankful for this relationship that we have through Christ with God. Thankful for it. And he, he powers this message by saying, one, brothers and sisters, loves that connective family unit that we have, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. We could stop right there. There is no greater motivation to the Christian to get out of the doldrums of life than knowing you are loved by God. And I know you're going to say, or you may say, but I don't feel loved. I don't feel worthy. I don't, why me? I don't know. I can't answer that question of why you. I can't answer the question of why me. But I do know that as one of God's children, you are loved by God. And I know that that's such a cliche thing of saying, you're loved by God. Remember, you're loved by God. But it is literally life-changing to be loved by God. The alternative is dreadfully fearful. You're an enemy of God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I don't want you to be an enemy of God. You lose, and you will lose big time, and you will lose for an eternity. But if you're loved by God, loved by the Lord, 
I don't know what else you could possibly need to know in your Christian life more than you are loved by God. You know that children's song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know? Everybody's heard that? I'm not putting in a song request right now, Libby, so you don't have to come on up. But that song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So, Little Ones to Him Belong, They Are Weak, But He Is Strong. And I know there's other verses there. It is probably one of the richest, deepest theological truths you will ever sing to God. Jesus loves me. In a little kid's song, it is full of the absolute truth that motivates you to a strong walking relationship with God. Jesus loves me. This I know. Not because I feel it, but because the Bible tells me so. So if you ever, ever again in your Christian life doubt that God loves you and cares for you, then you need to, if you have a physical Bible, take that Bible out and write in that very first page, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, just in big letters. And if you don't have a physical copy but it's electronic, uh, I, don't, I don't know, make it your screensaver or something. Do something that reminds you, I can go to 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and remember that God loves you. So that's his beginning motion. You are loved by the Lord. Why? Because he chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Why does he love you? It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how good you are, how good you'll become, how dedicated you are, how faithful you are. It has nothing to do with you. It's because he chose you to be first fruits. He wanted you to be special in his eyes and special in his kingdom. And I know that saying, if everyone is special, then no one is. But in God's eyes... He looks at you as an individual and as a community of believers and knows every single individual what you're going through and how special you are in his eyes because his son died on your behalf. That is how special you are. That is how unique you are. That Jesus took your place upon the cross to bring you into a relationship with the Father because God chose you as first fruits, which means you are special in his eyes. He you are the prize in his eyes. And when you look around, everyone is the prize in God's eyes through the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And he moves that in that gospel by saying to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So God's mysterious way of how the Holy Spirit moves and interacts in our lives, changes our hearts, brings us from dead to life because of our belief in the truth. The truth, as God reveals, and he says, my word is truth. If you want to know what truth is, it is his word. That is absolute eternal truth. It does not change. It does not conform to the culture. The culture does not tell us what truth is. Society does not tell us what absolute truth is. God does. And we are changed and renewed and brought into a relationship with the Father through the work of the Spirit and truth. Truth and the Spirit. As Jesus said in, uh, I think it's John chapter 4, John chapter 7, that we are sanctified by the Spirit and the Word and that we must worship Him in spirit and the truth. 
There is a spiritual connection we have to God, and that spiritual connection with God is maintained and grown through truth. So our understanding, our reading, our knowledge is vitally important, but it doesn't rest on that. It rests on the fact that God says, I want you to be first in my world, in my existence. I want you to be there, and I want you to be valued so that you are loved. He then says, in verse 14, continues this incredible moment of uh, motivation and says, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does this whole relationship with God start? Through the gospel. It's always through the gospel. It is always through the creation and the fall and judgment and uh, the gospel and our response. It is always through that process. God doesn't have any other way to reach him than through Jesus Christ and him alone. There's only one name in which to be saved under heaven and only one path to God's good side. Every path leads to God. God will bring everyone to justice. Everyone will stand before God, but only one path, his path through his son Jesus Christ, leads to pleasure. The rest lead to damnation. But the whole process starts with the gospel. And so a church that doesn't know the gospel, a Christian that can't explain the gospel, not preach it, not stand up in front of people and wow people with the gospel, but simply state, what what do I need to believe in order to be saved? That should be on everybody's mind as quick as, what's your favorite food? Where's your favorite place for a slopper? You should, boom, I I know all those, I, I know all that. What's the gospel? Oh, it starts with God creating us, but we sinned against God, and we all fell short of him, and God's judgment on us is death. But he said, I'm going to bring you someone who's going to pay for that penalty, redeem you, and if you believe that, you'll be saved. Do you believe it? Ten seconds, and you have presented the life-changing truth that every single human being, regardless of gender or race or, or status in life, every one of us, needs this to be saved. And Paul says it starts with this. It starts with that simple message, and it never changes from that message. It is always about the gospel. A church that does not have the gospel is not a church. A Christian that does not have the gospel in their lives is not a Christian. They're pretending and taking a name that's not theirs. We are saved through that work of the gospel, plain and simple. Nothing else is added to it. No goodness, no works on our behalf earn merit or favor before God. It is by faith and faith alone in Christ. And he says, so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How glorious do you think Jesus is? How glorious do you think? How beautiful do you think he is? How powerful do you think he is? How amazing is Jesus. Uh, It would start to bring a smile to your face as you start talking about all the amazing things about who Jesus is, how he was predicted in the beginning of Genesis, all the way through the book of Revelation where he returns victorious and triumphant. Wow, he's amazing. I don't think there's an English word that you can use that just describes in total the beautiful character of Christ and who he is and what he's done. It's impossible to put all of that together in a single word. Amazing might be, beautiful certainly, 
wonderful, yes, but all of these adjectives, there's so many, so many ways. And Paul says, in this relationship with God, through the Spirit and on truth, you've been brought into this relationship with Jesus Christ, and it is as if you died on the cross, he died on the cross. He rose from the grave, you rose from the grave. He is triumphant with the Father, you are triumphant with the Father. How do you describe a relationship like that? Where everything good that he's done, and he's only done good, everything good is yours. For what? What did he ask you in return? How much is he asking you in return to give? Now that's a trick question, okay? It's a trick question. Because in order to have the prize of eternal life, it costs you nothing. Nothing. But he also has said at the same time, I now have your life. You're now mine. So there's an exchange that does take place. Not a monetary exchange, not a dedication exchange, but a life exchange. Jesus says, I'm going to give my life for yours. Okay, what do I give? Well, now your life is mine. And so that's why I call you a Christian. You're Christ-like. You're now one of mine. That's why I'm, you're adopted into my family. You now take my name. You now take my righteousness. Now you take my reward. You take my inheritance. You take my place with the Father in his presence. But I have your life. Well, what does he ask you to do with your life? Live it for him. That means his desires come before mine. His passions come before mine. His priorities become mine. His words become mine. I now reflect Jesus Christ. That's what he's asked in return. Not to earn it or to keep it, but as evidence that you are indeed who you say you are. Show me by your works, James tells us. Now Paul continues and says in verse 15, to continue this theme of motivation, he says in verse 15, so then, kind of like an application point, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you whether by word of mouth or by letter. Uh, you know, uh, a couple years ago, I was able to convince a couple people here to go skydiving with me. Uh, and it was, yes, actually, all three of you are here. It was absolutely exhilarating. And if you invited me to go tomorrow, I would. It's that exciting to me. But I remembered... Uh, uh, it was a tandem jump, so there was a guy strapped to my back. That was the only weird part of it, but it was so exciting, it didn't matter. So, the guy, the guy's on my back, and he's telling me all these instructions, like I'm going to remember a single one of them. Uh, so, he's telling me all these instructions, and he goes, um, you know holding on to the harness won't do anything, right? Because holding on to the harness as hard as you want is not going to do anything. You're falling. What's holding on to a, a harness strap going to do? Nothing. And so he said, make sure you let go and just enjoy the fall. 
Well, he said glide. You didn't say fall. I, you know, I, probably psychological thing because it was falling. But I remembered for that second, as soon as I'm gliding out of the plane, holding on as hard as I could to that harness, and then going, oh, that's right. I mean, <laughs> it's me and 10,000 feet. There's, the har- holding on to that harness will do nothing, and so you let go, and you enjoy the glide down. As much as I wanted to hold on to that so I had some kind of sense of safety, this is kind of what Paul's talking about, though, kind of in a reverse situation. You hold on to the truth that you've been taught. And Paul says, it doesn't matter if I spoke it to you or you've read it. When I've communicated God's truth, you hold on to it. You grip it as if holding on to it would help you glide to the bottom better. And I think sometimes uh, we've probably all had close calls in a car, or we've been on a roller coaster, or we've done something where we kind of white-knuckle it. You know that sense and feeling of white-knuckling something? Paul says that's what you need to do to the truth. You need to hold on, stand firm, grab onto it, everything, whether we taught you by word or by mouth, by letter, stand firm, hold on to it. Why does Paul have to encourage us to stand firm and hold on to the truth? Why does he have to do that? Because it's pretty easy to let go of it. It's pretty easy to listen to the world say, did God really say this is wrong? Did he really say that? I don't know. All of us believe this, but you guys believe that? That's so old-fashioned. That's so old. Why would you believe that old way of thinking, that old way of living? We're much better now. We're more progressed, more open-minded. Oh, if I hear open-minded one more time. Open-minded just simply means your brain's falling out faster. I'll be proud to admit that I am closed-minded when it comes to God's truth. There is nothing new to be taught. There's a new way of communicating it, but there's no new truth to be discovered or taught. We may learn new truth, but God has already revealed it. We're not discovering it. It's there, and it's been there since the day he spoke it. But it is so tempting to get along with the world by saying, you're right, this truth is a little old-fashioned, we're a little bit more, you know, sophisticated and educated and cultured now, so I'll let go of that one. It is so easy that even 2,000 years ago, Paul said, you need to stand firm and hold fast to this because they'll try to pry it out of your hands, the truth. They will try and compromise it. They will try and undermine it. They will try and convince you God didn't create anything. It was all evolution by chance. Life has no value. Take it. Dispose of it. They'll tell you anything for you to drop holding on to the convictions that God is right. And so Paul says, hold on to it. Don't compromise on it. Stay steadfast because he knows it's easy to let go of it. It's easy to compromise. It is easy 
to simply say, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe that doesn't matter anymore in our culture. Maybe that doesn't matter anymore in our culture. When you start thinking that way, run back to 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and remind yourselves, hold fast, stand firm. In what? In what God's taught and what he said. That means I have to know this. I have to know what the truth is, and the only way to know that is by reading it, studying it, meditating upon it, letting it filter into my heart and my mind day in and day out, lest I forget. And then he continues, after he calls us to remain faithful, and he says in verse 16 and 17, kind of a closing statement here about being motivated, it may be a prayer, it may be a benediction, it, it's definitely encouraging, no matter what you may want to call it. He says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, all right, I, I mean, Paul's using all these pronouns to describe the same, we know who we're talking about, but may the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that is, the sovereign Lord Jesus, Jehovah, Yahweh, name of God, Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Okay, so may the Sovereign One appointed Lord and King who's been anointed by God, He Himself and God our Father. Three very simple words. God our Father. That has thrown the whole world on its head. God our Father. We take it for granted, it rolls off our tongue, but the truth there is deep. God our Father, the one who created, the one who brought judgment, not only upon sin, but upon Christ for taking our sins on our behalf. Our God and Father, a relationship of tremendous intimacy, not like our fathers on earth, don't make that mistake of relating God is like our fathers that we have. Because our fathers will disappoint. Our fathers won't do it right. Our fathers will make mistakes. Our fathers may not even be there for us. Our fathers will die. But not God, our Father. He is the perfect Father. And Paul says, may these two individuals, Jesus Christ and God our Father, may they who loved us by his grace, gave us internal encouragement and good hope. I mean, look at everything that's there just in that verse. Just so you know who it is we're talking about, this is Jesus Christ and God our Father who did these things for us loved us again, loved us, never doubt his love, loved us, and by his grace, which is unmerited love and favor, unmerited love and favor, we didn't earn the relationship, gave us what? Eternal encouragement and good hope. Eternal encouragement. How do we get out of the rut of just dealing with the miseries of this life? and it dragging us down and making us feel bad and scared and isolated? How do we get rid of that? Remembering who gives us encouragement that lasts forever. 
The cute little saying on a poster might give you a smile, but knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father loves you gives us an encouragement that lasts forever. May he give you an eternal encouragement and good hope, encouraging our hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Paul's encouragement for us to live the Christian life is to remind ourselves God loves us. God loves us. I want you to turn to one another and just shout that out to one another, but I, I don't want you to unsocial distance just for something like that. But as you have opportunity the rest of today as we go outside, tell people, tell people, God loves you. And it's not a sappy emotion of love. It is an encouragement of the truth. God loves you. Now, there's some verses that I have. Um, go to that last slide to take home. It's 2 Timothy 2.13, just like 2 Thessalonians 2.13, an amazing verse about God's faithfulness being unfailing. Lamentations 3.23, a verse about God's great faithfulness to us. And then Psalm 89, and I just put down verse 9, but it's verse 1, 4, 8, 9, 14, and there's some other verses there. The entire Psalm 89 is an amazing psalm declaring God's faithfulness. If you ever wondered, will God stop loving me? Will God just stop one day? Because I don't feel it today, so we must have stopped. you got to read Psalm 89. Because Psalm 89 takes you through the very first part of that psalm, reciting God's greatness and his faithfulness, and then turns it at the end of the psalm to say, I'm so faithful that I will extend my faithfulness to my son who takes your place as a sacrifice. And starts talking about God's faithfulness to the son of David, that is Jesus Christ. It is an amazing psalm of God's faithfulness. But our takeaway is to remember and never doubt God loves you. And in those three simple words, it is packed full of eternal truth and an eternal relationship that God has bestowed upon you. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, we are the first fruits of your work. And while we may feel unworthy, while we may feel unloved, while we may feel desperate, Father, you have calmed our hearts and our minds and our racing thoughts of the future. And you have brought us back to reality to remind us of the beautiful, simple words that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Father, let that encouragement ring in our hearts so that we might encourage others around us that God does love His children. And the Gospel brings us into that relationship. Thank you, Father, for loving us 
so deeply, so eternally, and so sacrificially that your own Son died on our behalf.